You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. talking about the relational importance of understanding a person's heart towards you. So think about this. If someone has, and we've all experienced this, if someone has negative feelings or negative intentions towards you, it can lead to conflict or even harm your well-being. But conversely, if someone has positive feelings or positive intentions for you, then that can foster a strong, healthy relationship. And so understanding a person's heart can help you make informed decisions about how to interact with them and whether or not to trust them. So in essence, a person's heart is really the lens, if you think about it like that. It's the lens through which we interpret everything that they say and everything that they do in relationship with us. And so overall, it's very important to understand a person's heart towards you in order to build and maintain healthy relationships. And this, I would argue, is especially important when someone says or does something that calls into question their intention towards you. So I want you to think about this for a second through the eyes of a child. Sometimes being a good parent means making decisions that don't feel good to your kids. For instance, kids need to eat healthy foods. They don't love that. If you don't have kids, that's what you'll come to find out. Kids need to practice healthy sleep habits. Kids need some protection and direction regarding both what is on the screens in front of them and how much time they spend in front of those screens. Now, uh, having been a kid myself and having three kids of my own, I understand that for kids, sometimes decisions like that uh, call into question a parent's intentions toward them, meaning those decisions can feel very restrictive. They can feel almost punitive. Sometimes those decisions through the eyes of a child can just feel plain mean. Now, some parents are mean. But by and large, decisions like these don't flow from hard hearts that long to harm a a child's well-being. They don't come from a heart that longs to steal all of the pleasure and joy and fun out of a child's life. Instead, they flow from a parent's heart that is for their child heart of love, a heart of care, and a heart of nurture. But if you don't understand a person's heart, you can misunderstand their actions. A person's heart toward us is the lens through which we interpret everything a person says and does. So it is crucial that we understand the hearts of those with which that we are in relationship. And I start this way because this is never more true than when it comes to our relationship with God. See, so often, and Shanna even alluded to this a little bit this morning as she led us, but so often what we feel about God is so different from what he says is true about himself. Think about it. He says he is with us, but oftentimes we feel very alone. He says that he loves us, but sometimes we feel shame that makes us very uncertain of that. God says that he is in control of all things, but oftentimes 
life kind of feels like it might just spin straight off its axis. And so when that happens, the question is this, what do we do when what we feel about God is in conflict with what he says is true about himself? What do we do? What do we do when what we feel about God is in conflict with what he says about himself? And the answer is, we come back to his heart. And so there may just be no fitting day for this then, Easter, because at Easter, we celebrate God's heart on display. We celebrate his love for us that resulted in Jesus laying down his life and taking it back up for ours. We celebrate his resurrection that makes the flourishing lives for which we were made possible. But this morning, rather than focus our attention on the specific story of the resurrection, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to get inside of the heart that drove it. My guess is, even if you are here and you're not super familiar with the scriptures, even if you're here and you're not super familiar with the Easter story, you probably know the basics. But after three years of teaching, after three years of freeing those who were spiritually oppressed, after three years of healing the sick and the frail, Jesus was arrested wrongfully. He was tortured. He was nailed to a cross. He died, and he spent three days in a tomb before he rose again that first Easter morning, making reconciliation with God possible through faith, by grace, in all of our lives. So that's like the cliff notes. And my guess is, all of us know that story, which doesn't mean we shouldn't consider it again, but I want to focus our attention this morning on the heart that drove all of those events. And so before we bring this Once Upon a Time series to a close, I want to sit really this morning with two more stories from Jesus that are all about his heart toward us. So this morning, we are going to sit with the story of God's heart. So if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you open to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at the first 10 verses, and I'm going to jump right into the first two because these first two verses really provide the context for these stories. So look, look with me. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible that you're reading from. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 start like this. All the tax collectors <clears throat> excuse me, and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, so verses 1 and 2 picture uh, tax collectors and sinners, which we've talked a little bit about through this story. It pictures them drawing near to Jesus in order to listen to him, which is curious because you wouldn't think that people that are labeled sinners and evil would want to draw near and hear Jesus teach the truth of Scripture. But there was something about him and something about the way that he taught these truths that caused these people to draw near. And their presence and Jesus' unwillingness to chase them off and instead sharing meals with them prompted very harsh judgment from the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious rulers of Jesus' day. And per the norm, the response of these religious leaders, as we've seen already throughout this series, was unhealthy, but it was entirely understandable. These men were appalled at the fact that Jesus would share a meal with those that they deemed to be rightfully traitors and sinners. Like, imagine, okay, like, we don't, again, I want to work hard that we show empathy where we should in Scripture, 
So I want you to sit with, with for a second and imagine what it would feel like if a person that you were with, or maybe even a person that you admired, accepted a group of people that had caused you or your loved ones great harm. Imagine what that would feel like. I'll give you an, an example. During apartheid, many black South Africans were imprisoned and killed for their political beliefs. And at the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela became the first black president of South Africa, and he worked very, very hard to unite the country. Now, instead of seeking revenge against those who had imprisoned and killed his fellow activists, Mandela decided to create what he called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this commission was not perfect, but it allowed for perpetrators of human rights violations during apartheid to come forward and to confess their crimes. And one of the most famous examples of this was the case of Eugene de Kock. He was a former police colonel who was responsible for the torture and the murder of many, many anti-apartheid activists. He was essentially an assassin and tortured people. And so de Kock confessed to his crimes he showed genuine remorse for his actions, and in response to that, Nelson Mandela personally met with him and expressed his own forgiveness toward him, saying that he hoped that de Kock could find redemption and contribute positively to society. Now, we hear that story, and my guess is we have a, there might be a spectrum, but we have a pretty shared response to that. Mandela's forgiveness and acceptance, it sounds noble to us. But if you put yourself in the position of those who had loved ones that de Kock had harmed, you would feel very, very different. As you can imagine, many of them were furious with President Mandela. And, and those feelings are similar to the ones that are expressed here by the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember that in ancient Near Eastern culture, sharing a meal with someone was a symbol of acceptance of them. And so they're watching this all play out in front of them, and all they're seeing is that Jesus keeps welcoming these people that they had decidedly rejected. And as we have discussed, the scribes and the Pharisees had built their entire lives on their own ability to carefully and meticulously obey every part of the Old Testament law that God had given to Moses. And in the wake of their zeal to obey God, they'd really rejected God's heart for them altogether, choosing to trust themselves. And it's into this self-righteous attitude of these religious leaders that Jesus proceeds to tell three stories back-to-back in Luke 15. Each of them is all about conveying God's heart for all people. And this morning, we're just going to sit with the first two stories because Denise covered the third just a couple of weeks ago, so we're not going to do that again. So uh, we're going to look at verse 3, and let me just read both of these stories to you, and then we'll spend a little time looking at them in more detail, all right? So look with me, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. It says, So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man among you, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. 
Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, weep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. All right, now, what, what might be a little bit lost on us is this. Jesus puts these religious leaders, because that's who he's telling this story to. There are tax collectors and sinners that are there as well. But this story is meant in response to the judgment of the Pharisees that we see in verses 1 and 2. So Jesus, in telling these stories, he puts them in a pretty precarious position. Because, like us, they would have wanted to identify with the protagonist in each of these stories. That's like kind of human nature, right? Like when we read a story or we see a story play out on screen we tend to identify with the hero in that story. So like we, we took our kids yesterday and we saw the new Mario Brothers movie, Lights Out, okay? Best picture, I'm calling it right now. <laughs> it's phenomenal. <clears throat> now here's what I would guess. My guess is you're not gonna walk away from that movie going, you know who I really resonated with is Bowser. He's, he, I feel like he's really got some things going on. I feel like we see things. I'm not, no one thinks that because he's a maniacal, murderous monster. So if you resonate with him, think about that a little. That's all I'm saying, okay? <laughs> so understand this. The challenge is this. The Pharisees believed that shepherds were unclean. In fact, the average Jewish person in the first century believed that they were um, inherently dishonest and lawless. So shepherds did not have a very good reputation. Now we look at it and we're like, well, that looks, I saw some sheep yesterday in the field. I was like, that looks awesome, just taking care of sheep. So we look at that and there's something kind of romantic and beautiful about it, but that was not the case in this culture. They were seen as unclean. No Pharisee would have been a shepherd. But Jesus invites them to imagine just that. So he says, imagine you're like this unclean person. That puts them in a weird situation. Additionally, women were deemed as inferior to men in every way in this culture. And so for Jesus to compare the heart and the actions of the father to a shepherd and then to a woman would have challenged these religious leaders to face all of their own prejudice and all of their own judgmental attitudes. And so all of that being said, let's examine these two stories just a little bit closer because in the story of the lost sheep, Jesus compares the heart of God to a shepherd who has lost one of his 100 sheep. Now, to Jesus' listeners, this would have registered as a very large flock. So much so that if a shepherd in that culture actually had 100 sheep and lost one, he probably was not going to lose very much sleep about that. He actually would not put maybe any effort into going and finding that one sheep because all he's thinking is, well, I still got 99 back home. And so he just would not have done that. But that's not the case for the shepherd in Jesus' story. He instead goes to great lengths to find this single sheep to then lift it up onto his shoulders and to carry it home. And then he calls all of his friends, all of his neighbors together, and he throws a party celebrating the sheep's return. Similarly, this second story pictures a woman who has 10 silver coins, but she loses one. So she flies into action. She lights a lamp. She 
literally turning the house upside down in search of this one coin. And understand, this would have been no small task because first century floors were just dirt or stone. And then they would put straw on top of it to protect from cold and dampness. So she would have had to like clear out all of that straw and then sweep a dirt floor just to find this singular coin. And I was reading that and thinking about that this week and I was, couldn't help but think about how closely it resembles a regular experience in our house. Because at least a few times a week, our Apple TV remote goes missing. Anybody else have that? I don't know why we can't have like the dinger thing on the remote. Like, l- listen to this, okay? Here's what I, my phone's right there, okay? I can do that for my watch. Why can't I do that with the remote? It's so, so obnoxious. So every single time this happens, it prompts this like mini panic inside of us. And then we kind of like make our way to every family member swears up and down. I haven't touched it. I haven't even, I haven't even seen it. Like we have like a troll that lives in our house and is constantly stealing our remote. So then everything gets picked up off the floor. All the furniture has to be moved. Cushions get flipped over. And we search the entire house because there's just no way of predicting where it could have gone. And we have found it in some real weird places. In fact, it happened in our basement just this week. And so Tammy did a deep clean to find it. She tore apart our sofa, and she found what she referred to via text to me as a deep cavern in our sofa, <laughs> which she found, I brought photographic evidence. She pulled out socks, a spoon, <clears throat> this is all one cleaning, pencils, candy, about, I don't know, a hundred Nerf darts, a full-size war machine, it's not, he's not this big, he's like, he's the big one, and wait for it, Ava's first gab phone, we thought for sure she left at Target. She did not. Now, despite what this might believe you to lead you to believe, we are relatively clean people. I know that this story in this picture does not represent that as true, but we're pretty clean people. Now, the good news is Tammy found the remote because it's, you know, resurrection week and we needed a miracle in our lives. But each time we find it, each time we go through this process, you know, you find it and there's just immense relief. But notice that when this woman finds her coin in the story, there's not only that relief like when we find our remote, but she goes so far as to throw a party like the shepherd who had found his lost sheep. So to summarize what Jesus is trying to drive home regarding the heart of God, here's how I would state it. God always seeks and celebrates his kids. That's what Jesus wants us to know from these two stories. That's what he was trying to convey to these religious leaders of his day. They they thought that the heart of God (coughs) would reject these people. But instead, Jesus goes, no, 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 God always seeks and celebrates his kids. And I would argue that there is nowhere that that's more clear than in the very mission of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. You know that at least five times in the Gospels that Jesus declares he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek those who were lost in sin, who were lost in confusion, who were lost in pain, who were lost in loneliness. Jesus did not sit back passively waiting for us to find him. He entered into human history on a rescue mission seeking to save us from lostness in all of its forms. And additionally, his posture toward you his posture toward me, his posture toward us is one of celebration. 
And this is really significant. It means we need to delete from our minds any image of an angry or disappointed God who merely tolerates us. Because if we're honest, in our worst moments, that's what we think. We come to worship services like this and we're like, Lord, thank you so much for tolerating me. That's not the best news. We have to delete that imagery from our minds. Three times in Luke 15, Jesus uses stories in order to tell us that God celebrates us. You know that in Psalm 18, 19, I really want you to sit with these words for just a moment because the psalmist says this, God rescued me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. I don't use this very often as like a rhetorical tool, but do me a favor and say, God delights in me. Good, that wasn't bad. Say it again. Say it again. Ready? God That's good. It's worth three. Say it one more time. Ready? That wasn't just true for the psalmist. It's true for you and me. And so I want to give you what it might first seem like kind of a strange image to help us understand this. And so let let me just start with some biblical precedent for this, okay? In Hosea 13, God is compared to a mother bear. Stay with me, okay? In Matthew 23, Jesus compares himself to a mother hen. Now, I mention that because, again, there is biblical precedent for the heart of God being described through the lens of what animals can be like. And so to that end, I want you to think about the delight on a dog's face when the owner comes home. Maybe you have a dog. Maybe you've experienced that. Now, cats are different, okay? (laughs) If you're here and you're a cat person, you're welcome. You can be here. You have bad taste in animals, but you can be here. <laughs> Cats always look indifferent. I had a cat for a long time. It was enormous. I named, literally named her Shere Khan. She was huge. <laughs> but cats always look indifferent. Every time you come in the door, like you could have been gone for days, the cat always looks at you like, what do you think you're doing coming into your home, interrupting my quiet? That's the face of, of every cat ever. Now, dogs are totally different. I can literally leave the room. I don't even have to leave the room. I could just turn my back and then turn back around toward Wicked, our dog, and you would have thought, like, it's the best day of his life every single time. His tail wags so hard, he looks like his back end is going to just fly right off his body. He's collecting all of his toys to be like, look, aren't you pleased with me? It's just like the most (laughs) desperate, delighted experience that one living thing can have toward another. He is obviously just so delighted by my presence. Now, now in all seriousness, when it comes to God's heart toward you, he's way more dog than he is cat. Meaning, he delights in you. When he looks at you, he delights in you. He celebrates And so please listen to this. One of the most important realities that we can consider is what we believe to be the look on Jesus' face when he gazes at us. And so even now, if you feel comfortable, I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a second. And I want you to imagine Jesus looking at you and pay attention to the look on his face as he looks at you. 
here's what I would tell you. If you don't believe that God's face towards you holds delight, your understanding is defective. God delights in you. You know why? Because he always seeks and celebrates his children. You can open your eyes. Now, as we get ready to to close here, maybe you're here, and some of what you have heard this morning is new to you. And if so, I'm so honored to get to be the one to share that good news with you. But maybe you came in and you really just didn't have a biblically accurate view of God's heart towards you. Maybe you came in believing something very, very different than what Jesus would say is true about God's heart towards you. And so if that's you, if you have that experience where you're like, this is blowing my mind because this is so different than what I thought was true, then I just want to invite you, ask the Holy Spirit to seal that truth in your heart. But that being said, my guess is most of us probably didn't have that experience. Most of us probably didn't hear a bunch this morning that was brand new information, meaning we've probably heard a lot of this before. Most of us probably know that the Bible says that God seeks us in our sin and shame. We we know that God says he loves us. We may even know that God says he goes so far as to celebrate and to delight in us. But the problem is we don't feel that those things are actually true. And so the question is, what on earth do we actually do with that? Well, some would say that what you feel about God is actually irrelevant. It doesn't matter. All that really matters is what Scripture says is true about God. So then the council in that line of thinking says, well, just keep speaking the truth like a spell until you die or until Jesus returns. I would respectfully disagree. In fact, I would submit to you that that you will never trust and you will never truly relate with a God that you don't feel loves you. Furthermore, that approach that I just mentioned is why there's such a great divorce between what we know in our minds and what we feel in our hearts. See, the reality is The problem is rarely our cognitive understanding. The issue is so frequently in our experience, and we keep pursuing a purely intellectual solution to a largely experiential problem. And so it sounds cliche, but we have to figure out how this information moves from our heads to something that we experience as true in our hearts. And the truth is, only God can really do that. And while there are a multitude of spiritual practices that God has given to us in order to help position us for this experience, the first step every time, the first step is always to pray, asking the Spirit of God to do do just that to help us experience God's seeking and celebrating love. And I find in prayer, maybe you don't have this problem, but I find that sometimes I, 
I just assume or I skip over something that's really important but seems like kind of, like it doesn't cross our minds very often to go, maybe I should ask God to help me experience his love. My first thing is like, okay, I'm going to get on Amazon and I'm going to send a link to Tyler and have him order me this book about God's love. And man, I'm super pro. I got a stack. You can borrow them. Stack of books about God's love. It's important to, but I know that. You know that. If you came here this morning expecting to hear that God hates you, number one, why on earth would you go to that church? But we know that that's not the message of Jesus. We know intellectually that the Bible says that God loves us. But we don't feel that to be true. And the only solution I know, the only solution I found, is God himself. He has to move that from our heads into the realm of our experience. And so let's close our time praying, asking that God would help us to experience his seeking and celebrating love. And I'm telling you right now, that doesn't happen in a moment where you never then doubt that again. Everything with God is almost always process. But we can take a step this morning. And so why don't you bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, I thank you that you do love us. And I say that this morning in faith. I say that aspirationally this morning because there's still so many things in my own experience. There are so many things in our all of our experiences where we're still really trying to experience that as true. We don't always feel that you are near, that you love us, that you delight in us. In fact, so often we feel the opposite. And Lord, you know how much time we could spend sitting here today and talking about all of these different spiritual practices that you have given to us as a gift as, as conduits through which we can experience your love. But you know the constraints of time. And so more than anything, Lord, I, I know that you have said in your word that, that so oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask. And so we ask this morning. Lord, would you help us not only to have an accurate intellectual understanding of what is true about you and true about ourselves, would you let us feel those things and experience those things as true? Could you do whatever work needs to be done in our hearts that we could actually live as a people who know and believe that we are loved and delighted in by you? Lord, let that heal every wound in every heart that would tell us the opposite. And I pray that we would display that same love to you and to one another. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has never received and embraced your forgiving, gracious love, I pray that you would open their hearts to faith this morning. That they would turn from being their own gods or turn from trying to earn their way in to your affection or acceptance and instead just receive the gift that we celebrate at Easter, that you rose from the, the dead, 
You said, hey, I, I took care of everything on the cross. I hung there and I breathed my last breath. And with my last breath, I declared, it is finished. And so just receive the gift of my love, the gift of my forgiveness, the gift of my healing. Lord, would you awaken hearts to receive that gift? And for those of us that have made that decision, I pray that the reality of that truth would go just a little deeper in our hearts this morning. We love you. We thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you.